I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Girl, real talk. This whole it's a new year, time to reinvent myself trash is not the vibe for 2024. You can find someone who loves you for you, as you are. You don't need to read a stack of self-help books, only eat sad salads, or like start meditating at 5 a.m. to be ready for dating. So yeah, my advice is to download Bumble and find someone who embraces you the way you are right now. Let me know how it goes. This idea of women, and maybe especially mothers and daughters, passing back and forth these accusations of anger, (laughs) you know, like, who's holding the anger? It's like the hot potato, you know, in the relationship. I'm Jordan Kistner, author of the essay collection Thin Places, and this is Thresholds, a weekly series of conversations with writers and artists about moments of epiphany or transformation that changed their lives and their work. A moment that they stepped across, like a threshold, into something new, and the way that experience changed everything they wrote afterward. To keep everyone safe, these interviews were recorded remotely, usually on a cell phone in somebody's home. And so you might hear some sounds and signs of life, like a car backfiring, a dog walking through the room, usually my dog walking through the room. Thank you for your patience with that. The title of Michelle Orange's most recent book, Pure Flame, comes from Susan Sontag's novel, The Volcano Lover, where a character says, I was glad to forget I was only a woman. I wanted to be pure flame. Michelle Orange's Pure Flame is a book about her mother's long illness, you could say, the illness that led to her death. But it's also about her mother's complex relationship to being a woman. Michelle's complex, angry, loving relationship with her mother. And on another level entirely, it's a book about the politics and perils of being a woman writing about mother-daughter relationships. Those loves, those angers, those betrayals, she argues, are as epic as any story can be. And she uses her own matrilineal story, as well as a lot of cultural and literary criticism of writers like Sontag and Simone de Beauvoir, among many others, to unpack that archetypal relationship. She's also the author of the essay collection, This is Running for Your Life. There was a real dividing point in my life, you know, as I look back, um, 
moving to New York from Canada, um, from Toronto, where I was living um, for a good chunk of my 20s, making the decision to move to New York was a huge um, turning point in my life. But it, it, it was sort of like the idea that the move itself or, or the change or a new place would, would solve the problems that I was having, you know, in my, in my life, in my work, in my uh, existence. And um, the threshold that I reached really was a year into the move um, when, when that uh, became very clear that just, just making the move itself wasn't going to change the things that I was looking to change or make the things happen that I was um, looking to see happen in my life um, that I needed to um, find a way, find a, find a way to channel. Um, I think I, I spent a good chunk of my early young adulthood sort of brimming with ambition in a way that was really painful because I didn't how to get it out of myself. I, I knew I wanted to write, but I, I, I hadn't found a, a way to, um, to settle down and, and get down to work. And, um, I spent the first year in New York in graduate school. I was studying film at NYU and I was also embroiled in a really painful relationship that took me to, you know, down the kind of <laughs> spiral that many people, you know, most young people go through at least once. And, um, at the end of that first year, I was just a, uh, I was just a wreck. And, um, kind of crawled back home, um, in, in, uh, a state of sort of barely existing. And, um, it was over that summer where I really had to decide, you know, for a second time, you know, I'm going to, am I going to go back? Uh, not just, am I going to go back, but am I going to live my life? You know, and I, I kind of knew it then, you know, it's not something that I've I mean, I'm sure it is something that I've fashioned in retrospect to some extent, but I really, it, it's, it's, I, it's the one moment in my life that I can look at and, and say, like, I made a decision in a way about whether I was going to live or whether I wasn't. And, uh, and I knew in order to, to move forward, I needed to, um, get angry about a lot of things and, um, sort of set fire to myself and my life and just like start working in earnest and start living in a way that I hadn't figured out how to do yet. So that, that's the, that's my story about threshold. <laughs> mm. <laughs> um, if you were, if you, if part of this change that you needed to make was getting angry, what, what were you before? What was angry? I before? I was, I was so angry and I was turning it all in on myself. Um, I was not able to like, um, and it's part of what I, I, tried to write about and touch on in pure flame and in considering my mother's life and her story was, you know, the, the, how, how deeply destructive that can be, you know? Um, uh, I, I don't know if I would say I was depressed. I certainly, um, didn't have a diagnosis in that regard, but you know, I've heard, I've heard of, of depression described as anger turned inward. Um, it, it was, yeah, it was this sort of like, it was just pinballing around inside me. And, and I, I didn't think of it as a constructive force. And I think it really is a constructive force or it can be, you know, and, and I just hadn't learned to, um, or I hadn't gotten angry enough or I hadn't, I just hadn't found a way yet to, um, channel it in a healthy way and let it 
drive me, you know, rather than hold me in a kind of um, destructive pattern where I was just frustrated all the time. Um, in that summer, you went home to live with your mom, if I remember correctly, or live in I her did. apartment. I was there for most um, of it, yeah. And what did you do? How did you spend your days? I was kind of catatonic. I, I had a, I, I asked for help. She, you know, which I also hadn't really done before. Um, you know, I was just having a hard time functioning and my mom really showed up for me. I remember she helped me get some, uh, I don't know if you'd call it therapy. It was some kind of like stopgap of like counseling through, through her work. And, um, I was just trying to learn how to, cause that was the other thing I, I, I mean, it sounds really silly, Jordan, but like, I didn't know how to, I didn't, I, I'd lost my rhythm for living, you know? And, and, and so getting, I, I spent the whole summer just trying to get that back. Like, how do I spend a day, you know, not even a, a quote unquote productive day. You know, I didn't, I didn't do any writing. I didn't, I didn't do any, um, you know, certainly any schoolwork or anything like that. I, I really was just, uh, a bit numb and all my friends kind of rallied around me and, and I took a few little trips with them and, and just tried to, um, reconnect with the world and, and live in a, a more outward way. And yeah, just it was like putting training wheels on a purse, on a human, <laughs> you know, and like, I feel like I just like wheeled around that whole summer just being like, I think I can do it. I think I can do it. Uh, and yeah, in my, in my mind, you know, in the background is this question of, am, am I going to go back? Am I, and, and, and honestly, I don't think there was any part of me that really thought I would give up, but it, it, the, the, I mean, on, on New York, I guess, I don't know. Um, but I, I was at a real impasse and, and it was sort of a survival question on a bunch of levels. Yeah. Why did New York feel like the symbolic lo locus of this question of giving up or not giving up? It's such a good question. I was having a discussion with a, with a former student the other day where she kind of asked the same thing in not so many words. I don't, from, from a very early age, it, it just became, it became a, a, the, the, the thing upon which I projected, you know, a, a lot of, um, a lot of this maybe unmetabolized or unrealized ambition that I had, that somehow that would be the place where I would figure it out. That was the place where, um, you know, you, you, you could, you could become the person that, um, uh, you think it is you should be, you know, that's where artists go to become artists. Um, it, I, I'd, I'd spent a little bit of time here in my, when I was a teenager and, and then in my early twenties and, and, you know, there was such a romance to it. I, I think as a Canadian, I'm sure there's a Canadian element to it. Um, but one of the things I wanted to tease out in the book was this, was the question of ambition and, and, individualism and, um, what I, the ways that I have overlapped with my mother in ways that I've sort of been loath to confront, you know, the idea, um, of needing to leave home and go to some sort of Mecca and like, you know, establish yourself, um, as, as separate, you know, from, from, um, the place that you came from, the family that you emerged from, 
I was a dreamy kid and I did a lot of reading about movies, literature, a lot of biographies of writers and directors and um, and, you know, New York just loomed so large in so many of those. Um, and I'm sure that had something to do with my uh, choosing that as the sort of locus of all of this, um, you know, pent up, um, uh, you know, need um, and, and wishing um, for a version of life that was um, livable and interesting and extraordinary. That summer or or ever, I guess, did you talk to your mom about whether or not to go back? I don't think we talked specifically about whether I would go back. I think she, once I had gone, which I, I, didn't, I don't know if she thought I really would or should, um, sh- she knew that I, you know, it, it, there wasn't really any way that I was going to... Uh, leave if I could help it. Um, so we didn't talk about that specifically. I think she felt like I needed some rest. I needed some, um, attention and, um, that I, I'd sort of find the resources to, you know, get, get back on track. Was there a day that you decided you were going to go back when you thought, okay, I can do this or I want to do this? It was more a sort of just growing sense of, okay, what would this look like if I go back? You know, who, you know, um, and, and that's just sort of clarified, you know, by, by the second half of that summer, I, I was feeling stronger. I was just feeling more confident and had just, just tried to start envisioning you know, a version of New York, um, without this person in my life and, you know, where it was just me and I was going to have to confront, um, my own ambition and my own mission in life really, um, which was to just start working and start, um, creating and, and making a real life for myself and not this sort of, <laughs> you know, just exit the the bizarre limbo period that I I feel like I I entered in my twenties and that um, you know, was a a source of a lot of pain. Yeah, were were you just not working during that during that limbo time? I worked. You know, I had a job. I was a functioning human. You know, to 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 some extent. <laughs> Um, I, I guess I, I meant all- creatively working, which I assume oh. to be your, your work. Yeah. I, yes. I mean, I, I, I wrote my first published piece when I was still an undergrad in university and, um, I started publishing steadily, um, you know, mostly online stuff and all most, almost all of it unpaid, you know, with sites like McSweeney's and, you know, these various other sort of upstart literary communities. So I was writing and I, 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 there wasn't really a point where I wasn't, I mean, I guess that's the strange thing. I, I, I was always writing and I, I was getting closer and closer, I think, to where I wanted to be. Um, but there was just something, uh, uh something that was, was out of alignment and, and that I knew I wasn't really going to, it, you know, it was the New York thing. It was the trying to make this leap. Um, and I had to prove to myself that like, um, I was capable of doing it and not throwing obstacles in my own way. Like, you know, 
terrible relationships or, you know, just like self-destructive behavior, you know, like all the, um, things that can distract you from the one reliable thing that, you know, you actually makes you happy and that you think you could probably get pretty good at if you, if you really tried and you risked yeah. failure, <laughs> you risk like that you put everything on the line, which means you're risking tremendous failure. It's incredible what lengths people will go to, to not go all in, to not, so so the amount of distractions people will put in their own paths. I mean, I, and I include myself in that category (laughs) totally, but but to like avoid feeling like, okay, I'm, I'm really going to go for it. I'm really going to take that risk. It's just astonishing. Yeah. And I'm sure you encounter this too with, with your students, you know, the, the, um, and I think artists, artists embody this in a particular way, but that fear of failure. I mean, I, I ask on the first day of every, um, class that I teach, especially if it's a workshop, you know, what are you afraid of? What's the thing, what are you most afraid of in, in, in your writing life and your work? Um, and let's talk about it. And nine times out of 10, it's that. And of course it is, you know, it's, it's, I, I don't want to, um, I don't want to fail. I don't want to fall flat on my face. Yeah. Particularly when, particularly when whatever the thing is that you're failing at feels maybe like a a true extension of yourself, which I think is true across art forms. Um, the stakes feel, seem to feel like especially high. Mm -hmm. When, uh, when you went back to New York, how did you, how did you operate differently? Even maybe just in the most practical sense, like what did you do differently after? Um, (laughs) I mean, I avoided men for a while. That's like so banal, but it's true. Like I just thought, don't, you know, stop it with the men, you know, like the, the terrible, uh, relation, like I, I changed my, um, you know, who I would let into my life, who I would, you know, if, if, if I had a vision and I had a mission, then I, I could be more intentional about, you know, the relationships that I was forming, um, the kind of people I wanted to be around. Um, so I, I, I did, I, I just became more rigorous about that and, um, certainly stopped getting involved with super inappropriate people. Um, and, tried to form more friendships, tried to, the, the, the real pity or one of the real pities about that first year in New York is that I had people all around me. I had so many opportunities, you know, to, um, form, uh, you know, bonds that, that would actually, um, uh, be, be beneficial, you know, that would, that would improve my life and hopefully me improve their lives. And, and I just, uh, I didn't take advantage of them. And so that was the other big thing is that I wanted to, you know, say yes to everything that, um, in terms of people that I, I was drawn to and that I, 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 I could start fostering a sense of community and, and, um, you know, finish up my, my degree. And from there, hopefully, and, and that the, there's a, there's a class that I took that year with Jay Hoberman, who was the um, then the chief critic of the village voice film critic. And I, I was so excited about getting into that class and I just wanted to put everything I had into in that, in the, in the masters of, uh, film, film studies program at NYU, there wasn't a whole lot of like 
non-academic writing, but this was a, this was kind of like a, a criticism workshop. And so it was an opportunity to really just kind of like, um, uh, show your work in front of your fellow students. And it was a whole different format and I loved it. And, um, showed up, you know, I wasn't just sort of like sleepwalking through my classes, like the first year, um, I just showed up, uh, and it, it, that I can very clearly trace back the next five years of my life where I was able to support myself, um, as a film critic, you know, among other things to that class and the people in it and the ways that I impressed them and the opportunities that I got as a result of that. And it was, you know, it was because I showed up. Hmm. How did that relate to this question of your anger, or maybe another way to ask that is what were you doing with your anger at that time? You know, <laughs> part of me was like, like I, I think I, I'm, I'm hesitating in saying this because I, again, I feel like it's going to sound sort of like cheap, but, um, you know, I was like, I'm going to show this person who like destroyed my life, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like I'm not gonna, you know, like I am like, fuck this, you know, like this is not gonna, this is not the end for me, you know, like this is not gonna, um, you know, uh, I was just determined to sort of. I don't know what the word is, but, but, but like move past, you know, a, a bunch of things. And so my anger was very specific in certain ways, you know, or, or I found a specific way to like frame it for myself, um, and just let it sort of, um, drive me in a direction that was actually positive. And, and, you know, when I, when I think of, I think of a writer like Graham Greene, or I think, you know, or when you look into the stories of, of, you know, whether it's artists or other people who've had some measure of, you know, quote unquote success in their life, but they can often mention one person, you know, like Graham Greene was bullied when he was a little boy by, I forget the kid's name, but you know, he, there was one specific person and, you know, when he writes about it, he, he frames it very much as like, or if it's your father, if it's your mother, there's some, there's some figure who looms large in your, in your early life or some phase of your life. and it becomes useful to <laughs> kind of use them as a, as a, you know, to, to, to fire you and say like, no, I'm not that, you know, I'm more than that. I can do more than that. I will be more than that. Um, so, you know, on, on some sort of like, uh, I don't know, both superficial, but actually very meaningful level. I, my anger was about, um, this isn't how it's going to be for me. You know, I, um, I'm, I'm, I'm actually going to do this and it's going to work. It's interesting that you mentioned that for some people that's their mother because it's like so much of the book, Pure Flame, seems to be trying to I don't know if if it's tell the story of or investigate the contentious relationship you had with your mother um deeply loving but also marked by anger in its own way um and I guess I'm wondering how you understood or understand your own anger in relation to her or perhaps to her anger I think it's interesting that my mother, you know, there's a moment in the book where I tell her that I'm writing this book. Um, and 
it's fraught in a bunch of ways. And one of them is that she's in an emergency room and she's, she's in respiratory failure. And I've been working on the book, um, for, I don't know, a year or two years at that point, but I, I'd been sort of doing it, um, a little surreptitiously. And this felt like a moment, um, I just felt the need to to let her know finally what was going on. Um, and her response to that, and I frame, I, you know, I, as I write in the book, I, I framed it in a sort of, I'm sure it was, a, it was like five in the morning. We'd been there all night and I told her, you know, I've been working on this thing and I'm trying to figure out some things and it, it's, it's sort of about you and it's sort of about me. And it's about these questions of legacy and, and, motherhood and feminism. And, you know, um, my mother just sort of looked at me with this very dim sort of resigned look and, and said, well, you were very angry for a long time and I'm sorry about that. (laughs) (laughs) And it was such a, uh, you know, the, it it was characteristic in that I, I think we, this idea of women, and maybe especially mothers and daughters passing back and forth these accusations of anger, <laughs> you know, like who's holding the anger. It's like the hot potato, you know, in the relationship. Um, and, and both of us, uh, neither of us feeling like it was okay to be angry, you know, that actually the anger, um, that we had, yeah, had all these points of intersection. We weren't, um, in opposition on certain things. And the problem was we couldn't talk about you know, um, the ways in which our anger was actually deeply interrelated and in, in sympathy in in certain ways. Um, and why would that be, why would it be, uh, and part of what I wanted to investigate with the book was, you know, all of the, the vast infrastructure that is, that is set up, um, socially and, and in, in, in our most intimate relationships to, um, prevent women, especially I think from, uh, being allies in these matters, you know, and, 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 and sharing their anger and, and not uh, with each other and, and, and rather than turning it against each other, which is not just, I mean, all, you know, of course there's going to be anger that's legitimate between people in such intimate relationships. But I think part of the legacy I wanted to explore with my relationship to my mother and, and try and set it in this larger context that perhaps applies more widely. Um, is that we just weren't able to, for so long, we were not able to um, talk about our anger in a way that that was that that involved a, a, a sort of um, a heritage, like a, a passing on, a, a sense of of um, correspondence, I suppose, and and that uh, it's okay that we're angry. We should be angry, you know, and we should be able to talk about it. And we're not necessarily angry at each other. We're, we're angry at the um, both certain conditions of our lives and the conditions that have prevented us from, you know, coming together. Yeah, I want to push on that a little bit just for any listeners who maybe haven't already read your book. What, mm-hmm. what when you say, when you talk about like the commonality of some of your angers or the way that you might have been allied or connected by your anger, had you been able to to find language for that um what were some of what were some of the things that you that you and your mom might have had been able to share share anger at Hmm. 
Well, I think my, my, one of my mom's angers was, was really, um, the feeling of disconnection she had with her own mother, you know, the feeling of, um, not having her choices supported of feeling alienated, um, by virtue of, of her ambition, as well as the opportunity that she had, you know, as though everything that she was able to achieve came at the expense of her mother. Um, and I think I experienced some version of the same thing. Now, I think my mother's generation, she was born in, in the forties. Um, it was a much more intense, you know, to, to, to come of age in the sixties and seventies, um, when, when, uh, you know, so much radical transformation was happening, I think isn't really comparable to the nineties, um, when I was coming of age, but I, I think, you know, there's still a version of it that, that takes place. Um, and I had to, you know, my, my, in my growing up, my mom wasn't really around, you know, she, she'd made a decision when I was in grade school to, um, you know, she, she'd gone back to, uh, get a graduate degree, a business degree, um, in her late thirties, early forties and started on this corporate track, very determined to, support herself, um, feeling that, you know, the marriage that she had invested and the family she'd invested in, um, might not work out and was sort of driven by this, both, I think, anger, um, with my father specifically, and with this, uh, idea that she'd been sold about what, what a good life might look like for her, um, to triumph, you know, and, and that for her, that meant self-sufficiency, making money, acquiring a certain amount of status and so watching that from afar, she, she eventually took a job that took her away from uh, the town where we lived um, and she would commute home on the weekends. So I was sort of watching my mother um, go through this transformation, but not really uh, just also feeling her detach, not just from the, from my father, but, you know, from me and from my brother. Um, and yeah, there's a certain <laughs> I'm sure on some level, I mean, I'm sure that, that there, there, there's some sort of anger built up around that, especially as one comes into, you know, one's own girlhood and adolescence and is trying to cohere a sense of, of, um, all the same thing, questions that she had about what, what it is to succeed and to live a good life. Um, and not having her guidance on that and feeling like there was a, it was by design in some way that like in, again, in order for her to, um, thrive, we needed to detach. There needed to be a severance between us. And I, I, I think there's, I mean, that's makes me furious to think about, you know? Um, and I think it's, again, I think it's, there are certain parts of it that are inherent to, to our relationship, obviously in our individual lives. And then there are other parts of it that I, I think are, um, functions of a, of a much greater context, you know, um, socially and, and economically and, and, and culturally, culturally as well. Sure. You write in the book about how hesitant you were to write about your mother or the subject of the mother daughter relationship. Um, you, you, I forget the, the line you used, but you referred to it as just like, uh, you know, a questing after failure or something to take on this subject. Uh, and I'm wondering how you 
reconciled yourself eventually to the fact that this was this was the book you were writing? Mm. That's a tough one because I the, the book that I thought I was writing, you know, five, six years ago when I started out is, is not at all the book that I ended up with. You know, it's, it's, um, I think in, in, in some, to some extent I had a kind of swagger about like, I don't want to do it. It, you know, it seems like it'll, it's, it's a, it's a, you know, yeah, sort of fatal quest for a, for a woman writer. Um, but I was tempted by that as well, but I also didn't think I would be I knew I wanted to use, um, my mother and her life specifically and, and our relationship and our maternal line specifically as an entry point, but I didn't think it would be, um, you know, the, the, the heart of the book, you know, I, I actually thought, um, in my initial conception of it, the book was going to spiral out, um, even, even more than it does now and, and spend more time in some sense on the, on the context or the, uh, a certain framing for, for, um, our experience. Um, but I did, I, there, there, there certainly was a part of me that, that saw it as a challenge and, um, didn't know exactly how I was going to do it, but I, I was, uh, determined to figure it out. Do you still feel like it's a fatal project for a woman writer? <laughs> uh, what do you think? I mean, I'm curious. I don't do, think so at all. I yeah. guess maybe, maybe the more the better question would be, why did you feel that way? What yeah. was your? I mean, you you write about it, but I'm curious to hear you talk about it as well. Why you felt like, oh God, this is this is this never ends well, but I'm going to do it anyway. Yeah. What I thought, what what I really felt was that it wasn't, these were stories that were not taken seriously and that were not, and, 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 um, it, there was a sort of ghetto that existed for mother daughter stories, um, that they, you know, I, I, as I write in the book, you know, when Simone de Beaufort talks about how, um, mother daughter relationships are just sort of generally catastrophic. Um, the idea that, if we're to take that at face value, which, you know, why would we, but let's say we do, um, it's not an interesting catastrophe. You know, it's a catastrophe that we all kind of know in it's rough outline and it's, um, uh, there's nothing about it that, um, holds the weight of, of, um, uh, I don't know. I mean, the word I want to use is, is tragedy or, or epic or, you know, myth and, and, all of, or, or the, let's say the preponderance of, of, um, recorded human history and literature would support that, you know, because the stories don't exist, or at least the, the, the fraction of them that do exist would suggest that, you know, it's the exception and not the rule. And I don't know. And obviously so much of that has changed in the, in recent decades, but, you know, recent decades is not, you know, 200 years or 500 years or 2,500 years. And so I felt the weight of that. I felt the, the, um, I felt the lack and I, it was part of why, uh, I had this feeling of, of, um, or this fear, I guess I should say of, of writing a version of this story that demanded, um, the space that I, I knew that it held and why I was so compelled by the Vivian Gornick essay in which she says exactly this, that, um, you know, actually in, in the modern world, the mother daughter framework 
can hold so much more uh, ambiguity and richness. And we should be using it as the frame for all of these stories um, that we seek to tell about, um, you know, uh, living a good life, leaving home, individuating all, all these, uh, uh, all the questions that storytelling exists to help us work through. And why, why weren't there more of them? And, and why weren't they um, part of the bedrock of, of uh, our literature? How did she, I guess, reconcile with the fact that you were going to be telling this story? Mm, you know, it's that's something that I have the sense that my mom's husband and her friends might know more about than I do or did. You know, we didn't we didn't talk a lot about it. You know, I I, I had my sort of ER you know, blubbery <laughs> confession. And she had her, you know, sort of cool, resigned response. And then we didn't talk about it for a while. And I waited for her. Um, I waited for her in some sense, or I waited from some, for some signal from her that um, maybe she was ready to talk about it or, you know, the, the, the way that we uh, communicated about it was really more in, in these sort of signs and signals. I mean, so much of our, our life from that point forward was consumed with, um, her survival and, and trying to manage her illness. Um, at the same time, she, she knew I was writing and now she knew what I was writing about, but she didn't have a lot of questions. You know, my mom was a curious person in that regard. She never had a lot of questions for me about anything, <laughs> you know, like, uh, it, it certainly not in terms of my work or, or uh, about my personal life so much. So there, there was a kind of void there. And I suppose in a way I, um, I don't know if took advantage of it is the right word, but I, I put the best spin on it that I could because she was, it didn't, there was no tension you know, around it. There was, there was no hindrance in our relations relating to it. Um, I knew I had her blessing in some ways, but her, her blessing, um, I mean, how, you know, I, I, I also completely understood why she would feel ambivalent, um, why she might harbor some doubt. And I sort of hoped and suspected that she was talking that through with other people in her life. I'm thinking back to sort of earlier in our conversation when you were talking about the summer when you were living with her <clears throat> and deciding to go back to New York. And I guess I'm wondering how, if there is a sense in which you think that decision or that time made this particular project possible. Mm, wow. I, I, yes. I mean, I, I think it, um, I think our relationship deepened that summer. Um, she had, she was recently engaged. She got married to her husband, Frank that fall. Um, and you know, the way that she supported me, um, through that period was new for us. Um, it was certainly the beginning of a, the beginning of the beginning of a new phase in our relations. Um, yeah, as well as a, a, a new, a new beginning for me in terms of really committing to myself and, and to, um, just continuing to challenge myself with my writing. And, uh, 
I think the, um, you know, I don't want to overstate it, but for, for me, the, the ambition of this project was, was even, and I knew this at the outset, even not, you know, uh, it, subtracting the, the circumstances and, and the fact that, you know, shortly after I got a contract for the book, my mother entered this, um, period of illness and, and, uh, and becoming terminal. Um, I knew the ambition of it was, was beyond what I could, I could get my arms around when, when we sold it, <laughs> you know, which I think maybe a lot of writers can relate to that. Or there's this sort of like confidence game that you play in nonfiction where you got your proposal and you, you sort of try and swagger in there and, and sell everybody on it. But, you know, most of the time you, you don't know exactly, um, what it is you're doing. And, um, you know, you may have a, uh, a lot of reporting to do or, you know, research that goes one way or the other. Um, and in my case, all of that and the circumstance of my mother's, um, of my mother's, uh, decline and death. Um, but I don't think I could have had the confidence, um, to, you know, throw my arms as wide as I could and see that it still wasn't wide enough at the, at the outside of this project without having spent a good decade um, you know, building myself up as a writer and, and, um, you know, that question of confidence and that's to go back to the, you know, the student setting, it comes up so much. And, and the, the answer that I always give is, is that building confidence is about, um, it, it, it there's nothing sort of, or, or, it's not as mystical as I think people, people might think or expect or want it to be. It, it for me, it's so bound up in routine and showing up for your, for your work every day. And, you know, understanding that a lot of them are not going to be great days. Um, but the way that you build confidence in yourself as a writer is by writing, (laughs) you know, and, uh, you know, continuing to challenge yourself and just continuing to, um, having faith that you're going to, you're going to keep at it no matter what. Thresholds is a production of Lit Hub Radio. We're produced by Drew Broussard and Justin Alvarez. Music and editing by Laura Faye Oshavud of Arthur Moon. Our art is by Kirsten Huber. Special thanks to Farrar Strauss and Drew. I'm Jordan Kissner. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at jordan.kissner. We'll see you next week. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.